it's fantastic to together turn our attention to God's Word and see what it has to say to us. Uh, and Albert mentioned earlier about the uh, ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, releasing census data. Did anyone else see that on their news feed this week? Maybe a Facebook article or something on uh, the, the news on telly as you watched it. Um, there's been a very consistent headline as uh, those feeds have uh, flashed across my screen this week and they tend to be a bit like this. Abandoning God, says the Sydney Morning Herald, Christianity plummets as non-religious surges in census. And uh, the journalist writes, Australia has become strikingly more godless over the past decade. With the last uh, census data showing the proportion of self-identified Christians dropping below 50% for the first time and a soaring number of people describing themselves as non-religious. Or you might flick over to the ABC and uh, similarly, Census 2021 data shows Australians are less religious and more culturally diverse than ever. So the ABC didn't just report on religion, it reported on culture as well and uh, similarly uh, analysing what's actually going on here. Uh, the the uh, as Albert mentioned, uh, many people have been taking note of what's happening in the figures and the relative influence and power that Christianity has in our society. And of course, as soon as the data was released, uh, there are voices like these ones from the CEO of Humanist Australia in an opinion piece. Census results mean religion should stop getting special treatment, whether that's as chaplains in schools or whether it's in the tax status of various uh, Christian charities and churches and so on. It's about time they stopped feeling like they were so special. They're not the majority anymore. And uh, the Melbourne Anglican, uh, in their monthly newsletter, down one-third in one decade. Fewer choosing Christian on census. One-third in one decade. That's not a great growth projection, is it? If you're running a, a business and looking at your bottom line and you were down a third in 10 years, you'd be thinking, gee, there's a limited future. What's going on here? So I don't know if those, been, those have been similar to the headlines that you've been seeing or the articles that you've been reading or the, the news uh, uh, snippets that you've been watching. How do you feel when you read those kind of headlines? Yeah, a little bit anxious, a bit fearful, a bit um, regretful. Uh, maybe a bit of longing for maybe some things that you see fading away. There's a whole bunch of emotions that you might be experiencing at the moment. Um, whatever our circumstance in life is, God's Word always has something really important to say about it. And as we've been going through Matthew's Gospel, we're actually up to a really significant moment. Uh, and I'd like you to turn to uh, the end of Matthew ch chapter 23, which was where we were up to as we uh, were travelling through it uh, together. Uh, until just recently and we're going to pick up the story as we uh, follow Matthew's gospel together and we're actually about to embark on the last large chunk of teaching which is contained in the gospel. Uh, it's often called the Olivet Discourse. Um, it's um, the last time where Jesus will uh, give a significant volume of teaching on a particular subject. After this um, message is done that Jesus will give to his followers, uh, it's all action. It's the sequence of his betrayal, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. You know, the action just really goes on to the end of the book. This is the last moment to take a deep breath, breath and to hear Jesus speaking to us uh, in, a, in a, a considerable amount of time. 
And there's a really interesting historical parallel between what we see going on in what Jesus was facing in this moment, as he's about to deliver this teaching, which is recorded in Matthew 24 and 25, and what we've just been reading about in the headlines of the newspapers or online uh, sources or TV uh, news, whatever you've been uh, seeing that news in. There's some similar things that are going on culturally in Jesus' moment as what we're experiencing in our moment. So we're going to get stuck into the end of Matthew 23, find out what's going on there and see how does that speak into all of the stuff that we're thinking and feeling as we see where our nation is at spiritually as it's reported or self-reported in the census of last year. Uh, Let's pick up uh, the story in Matthew chapter 23 from verse 37. This is what Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is addressing the city of Jerusalem after having yet another fiery encounter with the religious leaders within Jerusalem. And the encounters that Jesus has been having have all been leading up to the fulfillment of what he talked about way back in Matthew chapter 21. I don't know if, you, uh, if you've been here for long enough and you remember when we looked at that together. If you know your, your Bibles, you might remember the parable of the tenants uh, where Jesus describes Israel as being like a vineyard and the religious leaders as being like the tenants who were in the vineyard and they were supposed to look after it on behalf of the owner. Um, And that's a picture of the the way that the religious leaders were meant to be shepherds of God's people, serving them, helping them to know the God who created them, who loves them, who wanted a continuing relationship with them, and who wanted to work through them for the good of the world. But the religious leaders had stopped doing what God had called them to do. And in the parable of the tenants, Jesus describes prophet after prophet being sent to them to bear the message that they needed to get back to what the owner had asked them to do. And they kept ignoring ignoring those messages they kept persecuting them in some they even put to death and then Jesus said and finally the owner would send his son and what would they do to his son they would put the son to death and sure enough just as Jesus said in that parable that's exactly what those religious leaders are right now at this point in time as we pick up the story in Matthew 23 this is what they're planning to do in their hearts this is what they're orchestrating as a group and as we get to the end of Matthew 25 in this teaching block we will see again the story unfold where they execute their plan so they are in this moment where they are committing the ultimate act of rebellion against God the ultimate act of rejection of God Uh, they are going to kill God's own son and as Jesus who is very aware of this has been uh, talking to them about the judgment that would come upon them after they have done this thing he has not pulled any punches and if you were here as we looked at Matthew 23 he is very very strident as he describes the judgment that would come on these religious leaders for the way that they have abandoned God It's ironic, isn't it? Because that was the headline we were just seeing about Australia. Abandon God, says the journalist. But as we look at what Jesus says about what's going to happen to the nation that he is within at that moment, the nation whose leaders had abandoned God in that very storyline, and as we think about, well, how does that apply to us in the storyline of our nation and what might happen to us, first I want to notice a detail 
detail that's present at the end of Matthew 23 that we don't really want to skip over. See, Jesus had warned the leaders, and it's um, in the verses immediately before these ones where he had warned the leaders of the judgment that would come. But as he does that, I want you to notice uh, as we look to, there it is, verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. See, Jesus, in the verses before that, has just been warning them of a judgment that would come upon them once they had performed that ultimate act of rejection, once they had carried through their plan. And at some point in the future, in fact, before that generation had passed away, God's judgment would be felt by the nation. And we'll explore more of that as we go through chapters 24 and 25 that describe how that was going to happen. But Jesus says, but right now in this moment, even before God judges you for this terrible way that you've rejected him and killed his son, right now, see... Look around. Your house is left to you desolate. What does that mean? Well, let's read on a little bit further into Matthew 24. And we read these words in the first three verses. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. And he replied to them, Do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's the question that leads into the teaching of Matthew 24 and 25. But notice again what has already happened. As they walk out of Jerusalem, his disciples, they're looking at these massive stones. They're looking at this uh, grandiose uh, temple and all of the buildings surrounding it. It looks so huge and formidable. The, the gold um, leaf that's covering uh, many of those bricks and the roofs and the doorposts and, and uh, all those sorts of things, it's just so ostentatiously wealthy. It looks like just something that's so incredibly impressive. And as they bring Jesus' attention to that, He basically says it's all going to fall. Don't get carried away with what it looks like from the outside. This house, as he just said to those leaders, is desolate. When it looks brilliant, it looks impregnable. It looks wealthy, it looks opulent. You've got all these people flooding through it. There's so much activity going on. There's great choirs singing. There's sacrifices being offered. It looks like a hive of activity. That doesn't look desolate to me. But Jesus looks at it and says that it is desolate. Why does he say that and and how is it true? Who remembers in the story of the crucifixion that one of the things that happens is the temple in the curtain is torn from top to bottom. Do you remember that? And you know what was being displayed in that moment? What was meant to be in that room? We call it the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. What was the temple actually meant for? What is it that made the temple truly glorious? It's the presence of God. It's the house where his physical presence on earth dwelt, his glory. We call it the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. It was something so amazing that no one could walk into that. They'd fall down dead if they tried. There's something very amazing and glorious inside the temple. And Jesus looks to it and says to those religious leaders, it's desolate. It's empty. And upon his crucifixion, that is proved to be the case. In fact, there's this amazing historical precedent 
uh, that we read about in the book of Ezekiel. And the storyline in the book of Ezekiel is really, really similar. Prophets had been sent again and again and again to challenge God's people who had uh, mixed in the worship of the true God with the worship of all kinds of false gods. There was injustice and immorality. They were not loving God and loving others the way they'd been invited to, the way they'd been called to. They were not representing God's goodness to the world the way they had been entrusted to. Uh, They had abandoned God. And despite repeated attempts from God to call them back, they would not return to Him. And in Ezekiel chapter 11, God pronounces judgment upon the rulers of the city of Jerusalem, just as Jesus has done in Matthew 23. And there's this really interesting historical parallel. God gives Ezekiel, the prophet, a vision where he looks to the temple, he looks to the city of Jerusalem, and he sees the glory of God lift up from the temple, move out of the city, and hover over mountains to the east of the city. This is how Ezekiel describes it in Ezekiel 11. The glory of the Lord rose up from within the city and stopped on the mountain east of it. God was demonstrating in Ezekiel's day that as a result of their repeated rejection of him, as a result of the fact that even though he called and called and called and offered forgiveness and offered restoration, that they kept turning away and doing evil things, that eventually God said, well, if you have rejected me like this, basically you'll get your way. I'll leave. I'll leave you alone. That was around about 587 BC that that prophecy was given, maybe a year or two before then. Does anyone know what happened in 586? Babylonian Empire came in, the city was destroyed, the temple torn down. It was gone. Why did that happen? Well, you could look militarily and look at what was going on in the Babylonian Empire and you could look at political stuff about how the king of Israel um, related to them and how he was uh, unfaithful to promises he'd made. You could look at it purely from a, a political machinations kind of point of view. Well, this was the events leading up to it. Uh, you could look at it um, from those human eyes of explaining the storyline of what person did what thing. But from a spiritual point of view, as God is revealing it to the prophet Ezekiel, what was the real issue? The house was desolate. God had been with that nation. He'd established them in the land, just as Graham reminded us. He'd brought them out of Egypt. He'd given them a good land. He'd said, this is the place. It's going to be a land, as they talked about in the old days, flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it was prosperous. It was a great place for them to be. It was a place from which they could shine the goodness of God to the surrounding nations. But they rejected God. And finally, after trying and trying and trying, he said, okay, I'll leave you alone. And God departs from them. And within a year or two, they're gone. They're destroyed, utterly destroyed. And now Jesus, after having ministered for three years and after having said, oh man, I just want to gather you together and restore you. And they've rejected and rejected and rejected. And he says, finally, okay, your house is left to you desolate. It's such a tragedy because as you read in the prophets, uh, you read that that house that Jesus was in was promised to have greater glory than even Solomon's temple. Why? Because Jesus himself was going to be there. And yet they said, we don't want you. And so he left. And within a generation, within the next 40 years, the Roman Empire came in and the place was utterly destroyed. It's not fun looking at history, is it? When it's history like that. That's not a story we want to tell. That's not a, hey, let's walk out of here saying, woohoo, they got what they deserved. It's heavy. And we've just looked at headlines on our screen that said, abandoning 
God. And I wonder if there's a little bit of anxiety within you that says, what about Australia? What about us? Are we on a similar kind of journey? Is there something here that we're supposed to take away and feel really, really worried about? And so that's a question that is worth exploring together. Does Matthew 24 and 25 tell us anything about that? Does the rest of the scripture answer that question? And if it is true that this is a pattern in history that we see, certainly in Israel's case, and maybe in Australia's case, what do we do about that? How are we supposed to respond? Well, as we spend time in Matthew 24 and 25 over coming weeks, uh, this issue will be addressed very thoroughly for us. This passage will speak into the times in which we live. And we'll see that when Matthew 24 in particular talks about events to look for in the future of what God's judgment might look like, it's not just talking about far off distance events, it's talking about what it means to live here and now, either in relationship with God, under the protection of God, or having had ourselves in the situation of abandoning God what might that mean to us but first I want to go back to this question of whether Australia really has abandoned God like all the headlines are telling us at the moment is Australia really abandoning God or is something else going on see this headline doesn't ask a question it makes a statement Australia has become strikingly more godless And in many ways, you could look at some things that are going on culturally and say, yeah, that's possibly true. But is it really true, just because people ticked a certain box on the census form? Um, Well, certainly when you look at the census, it's not looking real great. You've seen the the headlines talking about decline. In fact, in WA, it's worse. In WA, uh, West Australians are losing their religion at a faster rate. Nationally, 38.4 of us percent of us say uh, that they have no religious affiliation in WA that figure is 42.9 percent and that compares to 41 percent who say they're Christian so uniquely in WA the people who say I have no religion outnumber those who identify as Christian uh, for the first time here's the interesting thing though I want you to imagine your workplace or maybe the place where you play sport maybe the school that you attend Uh, wherever you are just connecting with people who are just generally members of society like we all are. Do you feel like four out of ten of them are followers of Jesus? You say that? So when we say, oh man, this is terrible, only 41% of people are Christians, what, you mean 41% of people are Christians? That'd be awesome! It's, it's not really the case, is it? What's actually going on when we fill out the census? What, why are people saying that they are Christian if, according to your experience, maybe 41% of us actually are not? This is how Michael Jensen explains it. For a large part of Australia's history since 1788, religion has been tribal as much as a matter of personal faith. If you were Irish or Italian, you were Catholic. If you were English, you were Church of England. If you were Scottish, you were Presbyterian. If you were Greek, you were Orthodox. You went with the customs and rituals of your tribe. You had a place to get married and buried and school for your children with people like you. Who comes from one of those heritages? Yeah. Right, so, we, so we understand what's going on here. When people tick the box, what are they saying? Are they saying, I am a follower of Jesus? I believe in him, he is saviour and lord. Or are they saying, well, my family's Scottish and and we get married in the Presbyterian church and we have our funerals in the Presbyterian and we go to that school which has this Presbyterian kind of link to it. Is it more like that? And over time, as some of those tribal 
links start to fade away because we're more multicultural and we're intermarrying and we're forgetting our family heritage and it was boring having to sit through those chapel lessons in school and I don't want to do that anymore. As we get further and further away from that tribal history, we just don't tick the box anymore. And is that actually a problem anyway? Well, I wonder if it's actually a real great opportunity. I've had many, many conversations with people who I really want to talk about Jesus as Saviour and Lord with because I know that they, want, they really need to experience life from him. But do you know what has happened to me on numerous occasions? As soon as you bring up religion, oh yeah, I'm Presbyterian. Oh, I'm Catholic. Uh, I'm, I'm Protestant. don't really know what Protestant means. What are we protesting? I'm not really sure, but that's what I am. You know, that's my tribe. Um, and so often because people think they know what you're talking about, oh, that means I go to chapel, I go to church on Easter and Christmas, I have my kids christened, I will get, uh, I'll have a funeral in a church, I got married in a church. Because they think of that stuff, they don't actually think Jesus is Saviour and Lord, which is what being a Christian actually is, isn't it? And so your starting point is different. And sometimes it's easier to start with a blank slate where somebody says, I have no idea what Christian means. Tell me about it. You, you seem to be pretty excited about it. As opposed to, yeah, yeah, I already know all that. Don't, don't worry, I'm, I'm sorted. Uh, I'd rather start with a blank slate. And increasingly, culturally, we're starting with a blank slate, which is a really exciting thing. It's easier to start with people who don't know rather than to correct what people think they already know. But there's a flip side to that. Because as we've already reflected, as we reject even that tribal understanding of Christianity, it also means rejecting that there was a morality that came with that as well. It's not only that people are less likely to bother coming to church on Christmas and Easter anymore, because you know what, I'm not, I'm not Church of Christ anyway, that's not what I do. Um, it's not only that they won't perhaps go to a, a Christian minister to get married or to have a funeral. Um, it's not that they'll send their kids to Sunday school like used to happen a generation or two ago. It's not that they're just rejecting kind of those external things that go with cultural Christianity. It's that they genuinely can't stand anymore what we teach about what's right, about what's wrong. They don't see it as about values. They see it as about people. They see it as about rejecting what people feel or what they do, and that's abusive. And even if you just get asked to share an opinion that you didn't put in anyone's face, you're still an abuser and a hater if you say honestly what you think about some of these things. So there's a downside to rejecting even nominal Christianity. Morally, we're going to get into a much scarier and more dangerous place. But as we go through Matthew 24 and 25 together, what Jesus does as he explains to us the times in which we live now is he tells us what to do about it. He tells us what's really needed in the world that we now find ourselves living in. Murray Campbell, who's a Baptist minister uh, in Melbourne, uh, explains it like this. Now, as churches have done for millennia, we must look across our streets and suburbs and see people who are made in the image of God, yet who are cut off from God. And we must learn to see these neighbours as people to love and serve. We must find ways to tell them about the greatest news the world has ever known, that God loved this world so much that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have life everlasting. See, loving people who are just like you, who agree with what you think, is one of the marks of cultural Christianity. And we know that because you just look back in history and you see those cultural Christians who called themselves Catholics and called themselves Protestant and they were killing each other in direct disobedience to what Jesus said. 
That wasn't Christianity. That wasn't Jesus, his Savior and Lord. That is a cultural tribal thing going on. And, and we're turning our back on that kind of stuff, which is good. What are we doing? We're seeking to love even those who persecute us, even those who misunderstand us, even those who defame us in the public square, even those who take away our funding or our charitable status or whatever it might be. So how hey, we want to love you with the love of Jesus. It's always what Christians are being called to do because that's not cultural Christianity. That's following a Christ who is countercultural. It's following a Christ who went to the cross. What does Romans 5.1 say? While we were yet sinners, 5.8, sorry. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we get to do. We get to follow Jesus in loving people who maybe are going to get harder to love. So imagine with me that you go back to the start of Matthew 24 and you're walking out of Jerusalem and you're hearing this hard news from Jesus that finally, because of the rejection of him, he is now leaving these people to their fate. He's withdrawing his blessing. He's withdrawing his protection from that nation and they will fall and meet a horrible end. But you're looking at all those grandiose buildings and that ostentatious wealth and as you hear Jesus say, it's, it's all going to fall. I want you then to transfer that back into today. And maybe you'll look around at a church which has been very wealthy and very influential and has had plenty of people in it. And you might be hearing Jesus say similarly, that's all got to fall too. Because maybe that kind of Christianity abandoned God a long, long time ago. And maybe he's building something better to take its place. Something where people actually love Jesus, follow him, and don't just wear him as a label. Let's hear the heart of Jesus who lamented over Jerusalem and said, guys, I've been asking you time and time again, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. And as Matthew 24 and 25 explains, he's still saying that even today. There is still time. And maybe now is our moment to hear him and to come back to him. I want you to hear what uh, Jesus says in closing. Uh, after he's finished speaking to a bunch of churches and some of them had done what the leaders in Jerusalem had done. Their love had grown cold. They'd started abandoning God and rejecting him, even though they had started as, a, as people who believed in Jesus. And this is what he says to them. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him and eat with him and he with me. For those who have believed in Jesus, to those who have been given the truth, but maybe they've grown cold. Maybe they've been saying, well, Jesus, I don't want you to be involved in my sexuality. I don't want you to be involved in what I do with my friends. I don't want you to be involved in how I make decisions at work. I don't want you to send me out to talk to people about you. And, and more and more we've kind of been pushing Jesus away. And you might realize that there's a trajectory to that and you don't want to, you don't want to end up where that's going. You don't want to end up as somebody who has pushed Jesus away so much that you find... Where is he? You've been left desolate. What a terrible situation to be in. But guess what? I've pushed Jesus away. I've abandoned him at times. But he is so gracious. This is the offer. I love you. I want to rebuke you and say, stop doing that. And I want to say, I'm right here. I'm knocking on the door of your heart. I'm ready to be restored to you and you to me. And I'm ready to make a difference in your life. I'm ready to work through you to show my love to the world around. That's the invitation to the church. We don't care if Australia rejects cultural Christianity. It's garbage anyway. 
you know, we, we were never supposed to just give people weddings and funerals. <laughs> we need to give people eternal life. And we can do that when we're the people who are experiencing that life ourselves. Let's pray.